Good evening. Very welcome to this um, grand finale in our series on um, hard truths, the series of events that we have been organizing together with the New York Times over the last uh, month. It starts from a photo exhibit that you can see in the LSE atrium, and it has been inspiring a series of, of events, uh, and this is sort of the, the, the event that brings it all together. The, these different events have been looking at different challenges, individual, global challenges, and uh, we have tried to show how research can be used to uh, inform what we should do on these challenges. But we also know that these challenges are often interrelated, so you know, climate is related to migration, which is related to pandemics. Uh, migration seems to have something to do with uh, populism, and, and, and uh, so these, we need to think of them in, in one context, and that's where, where global leadership is needed, and that's what uh, this panel is about. It isn't exactly, you know, we, we have had for much of the last 50, 60 years one leader globally, the United States, but uh, today the United States is not playing that role, and um, multilateralism is not really the flavor, flavor of the month. So, luckily, we have uh, now the embryo of, of a new form of multilateralism, a, a multipolar one, and one which is more uh, inclusive form of multilateralism. And uh, this report, maybe you can, Ngozi, can you hold up the report? To, this is the, um, the this so-called... G20 <laughs> uh, eminent persons group on global financial governance. It's not the best of, of names, but it's an, an attempt to um, really address these global challenges in, in, in one context. And um, it's, this group has been led by um, Thorman Shanogaratman, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore. It had and I think here's where we can see maybe the embryo of this new multilateralism. It had half the members from the uh, emerging world and half from the uh, uh, advanced economies, and it was led by someone from uh, an emerging economy. We, we uh, have uh, had the chance to have this report uh, presented uh, uh, two weeks ago at the annual meetings of the World Bank and, and the IMF, IMF in Indonesia. And uh, the, the report is unique, I think, in the sense that it looks at the entire global system, so including the IMF and uh, the, uh, the development institutions, the World Bank and the regional development banks. And, and we have had to, to make them try to make them work as a system and uh, be more effective in supporting development and securing that we get more stable flows of capital into emerging and developing economies. And I've had, had the pleasure of being part of the secretariat of this uh, process, and, and we have three members of the Eminent Persons Group on this panel, and two of them are actually now faculty at the LSE. So, so as you know, we're doing these events uh, in collaboration with the New York Times. We, we are delighted to have Ellen Berry here. 
international correspondent for the uh, New York Times. She will lead the conversation on the panel. She's worked in some of the most important emerging economies, including in Russia during a critical period in its modern uh, political and economic development. She's worked in India. She's now covering uh, important global issues like migration, security, and, and demographics uh, here from, from London. So please, Ellen, the floor is yours. I'm really so happy to be here tonight with a group of people whose work I've been watching from afar for a long time. Um, as Eric said, I, I've spent the last 10 years working for the New York Times in Russia and then in India, and returning to the colder, richer part of the world, I have the feeling that I've um, moved from the expanding world to the contracting world, <laughs> in a way. Um, and yet, the subjects that I am writing about are always the same. The great convulsions of our time are not confined to nation states, and they cannot be contained by nation states. Climate change that is sort of shrinking the perimeter of the habitable world, um, financial crises, migration crises such that a civil war in Syria can lead to the removal of a chancellor in Germany, um, and technological change that is simply rewiring our society and the impulses that move it. Um, these are the great problems of our time. They can't be solved by individual states, and yet trust in institutions is declining. Um, facts themselves are harder and harder to establish in any kind of collective way. Um, and for all these reasons, the work that our panelists are doing is uh, that much more vital for us. Um, we have among us two former finance ministers, one former foreign minister, chief economist of the World Bank, um, and uh, a sort of larger-than-life larger um, commentator on the Middle East. Um, I'm delighted to greet all of you, and I think we should start out by talking a little bit about the origin story of this report, and I will turn to Lord Stern on my right to tell us why it was necessary to rewire um, our, our global financial infrastructure. Thank you very much, Ellen, and thank you, Eric, for initiating all this, um, this discussion. The report uh, started with a request from the G20 in 2016 under the German presidency. Um, there had been lots of reports on um, the reform and the, the need for reform of the international financial system. And actually, there had been a very good one just before the uh, German G20 presidency of 2016, which Ngozi herself was directly involved with, which um, was uh, convened by the um, Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. As a result of uh, that report, but that was an expression of a pressure for change that had been very long-standing, uh, Germany was persuaded that now was the time for the G20 to request 
a report. That's very important because there have been whole shelffuls of reports on the future, futures of the international financial system, but this one was um, requested by the G20. It's been present, presented uh, to the G20 and they have decided to put it in their so-called in international financial architecture working group to take it forward. So it is now in the G20 system. So that's a rather narrow answer to the origins, but it's a very immediate answer. The big answer to the origins is that the world has changed dramatically since the 1940s when the um, international financial institutions, at least some of the big ones, were established. And uh, that's famously associated with the Bretton Woods Conference of... Uh, of 1944, which established the World Bank, the IMF, and the World Trade Organization. Since then, we've had other multilateral development banks come up. Um, the Most recently, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which for transparency, Ngozi and I are on the International Advisory Panel of. You had, before that, uh, the EBRD set up uh, when the, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the former Soviet Union and that was intended to promote investment in that part of the world and in between you had the Asia Development Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank and the African Development Bank and those regional development banks are very important and indeed in for the most part, except for Africa, they invest more in their region than does the World Bank. So the long story goes back to 1944. What's changed since 1944? Well, the short answer is a great deal, but what? Um, first is the extraordinary uh, growth of the whole world economy. The world economy is now about 12 times as big as it was then. Four times on income per capita, three times on population. And the three times on population is for the very <clears throat> good and re reason which we should welcome is that people and children are not dying as young as they did before. So that growth has brought two big features. One is intense pressure on the global commons. The common, global commons is resources that we all use and we all affect. And um, Climate change, obviously, is particularly uh, important on that, but so also the pressure on the oceans and the, and the forests. So that 12 times expansion has brought intense pressure on the global commons, particularly since that growth was driven largely by fossil fuel energy. The second aspect to that growth is that it hasn't happened largely in the rich countries. So you have a much more multipolar world, you know, and if you measure it sensibly, China's GDP is already bigger than that of the United States. And, of course, strong growth in other parts. So we now have a multipolar world. It's not economically dominated by those countries uh, previously. There are only 40-some countries at the Bretton Woods. They're now uh, something like 200 in the UN. And it's not just they're more countries. It's that the economic weight has changed dramatically. A further way in which it's changed dramatically is through private sector investment. Now the big bulk 
of investment is private sector. Soon after the Second World War, in the processes of reconstruction, that wasn't the case. So you've got those enormous dimensions of change. Private sector, pressure on the global commons, multipolar world, the demographic changes I described, life expectancy has gone up from 40 to 70, and of course the structure. And within that story, you've got the particular challenges associated with Africa, which has seen strong growth, but not as strong. I'd like to, countries. to... So this is the big story of how the world's changed. So I've given you the immediate answer, the big story how the world's changed, and it's that big story that gave us the subject matter of the report to which we tried to respond. I'd like to bring in uh, Ngozi uh, Akonjo Iwoyala, mm. who has been twice the finance minister of Nigeria, once the foreign minister, and the managing director of the World Bank. And... I suppose what, what we would like to hear from you is, is sort of how this can be handled from domestic platforms. I, um, I've heard the idea that we're reaching the end of aid, um, that in fact the, the real uh, durable work to be done on global poverty must be done by governments. And many of these governments have um, very little money to spend on building infrastructure. So tell me how you see that happening. Thank you, um, Ellen. I can just continue the story a little bit from where Nick has left off and, and talk about some of the more specific things and the solutions we came up with uh, in the report. So Nick has talked about how successful the world economy has expanded 12 times and so on. Um, but this success lifted up uh, many countries, including emerging market countries, as he said, but certain segments of the population in developed countries and certain developing countries were also left behind or not lifted. And so we have this phenomenon in the U.S. that you saw where, you know, incomes of more than 50% of the population stagnated. We have, you know, and the Trump base and what that led to. We have the case here in the, in, in the U.K. But also there were developing countries who were not uh, lifted. And... Uh, in addition to this, there are other challenges that, that have come uh, forward. Uh, we have the challenges of fragility in many of these countries, conflict and fragility, environmental and climate change that Nick talked about, pandemics, demographics in these countries. You have uh, the richer countries where population uh, is aging and some of the developing countries where the population of the young people uh, is exploding. I think that um, nowhere is this challenge more captured than on the African continent. And, 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 and that's why Africa is of uh, special interest. Uh, just to think about it, um, by 2030, 87% of the world's population of poor people will be in Africa. 2030, 87%. By 2030, three of the 13 largest cities in the world will also be on the continent, Lagos, Cairo, and Kinshasa. By 2030, um, I think there'll be one, one third or more of the 600 million young people in the, in the world looking for jobs will be on the continent. So two-thirds of the infrastructure 
on this continent is yet to be built. So there, there are different challenges that are manifesting uh, on the continent, but there are also opportunities. As I said, two-thirds of the infrastructure on the continent will yet to be built. That's an opportunity because we stand the chance. Nick talked of an infrastructure, infrastructure challenge. We stand the chance of building this differently and sustainably in a low carbon, following a low carbon emissions pathway. So that to me is an opportunity. Um, other opportunities on the continent, the young people, if we can harness this resource, are also an opportunity on the continent. Whilst other parts of the world are aging, we, we are young. Um, technology can make a whole difference. On the continent, now out of the 1.2 billion people, 750 million have mobile phones. So there are lots of things we can do. So Africa, it's not just about the challenges, but it's also about the opportunities that we can harness. And one of the things I really like that we said in the report is we said this sentence, to bend the arc of history, we must succeed in Africa. So if we don't succeed, development would not have succeeded by all these institutions. Now to do that, Ellen said, what about the countries? The primary responsibility rests with the nation states and the countries. They have to take the challenge uh, in hand. And I want to remind people, you talked about aid, that now on this continent, 18 countries are what can be called aid dependent. That is 40% uh, or more of their budget is financed by aid. So even those that are aid dependent are financing 60% of their own development. And the others are financing much more than that. So when people think of Africa, we are financing much of our own development. But we'll have to do much more because the resources um, are, are not enough. And that's where countries must put in place the proper policies that will enable the private sector because we will need those private savings uh, that have not been harnessed to be brought in. We need the proper policy environment to make our countries friendly enough to do that. And we also need to improve our own domestic resource mobilization. The IMF has said that African countries have at least a space of about four percentage points of GDP that we can harness to increase the resources we have domestically. To do all of this, we suggested in the report that we need country platforms. And what are country platforms? Because the countries cannot do it alone. International actors, public and private, have to come in. But the way that country platforms work now, people working in countries, you see all these organizations impacting, coming in differentially. And when I was finance minister, on a day you could receive visits, if you allowed it, of five, six, seven different agencies coming to tell you about their program and seeking your attention. Um, and in some countries, you get more than 700 missions a year from different agencies. This doesn't work. The sum of the parts doesn't add up to a whole when you talk about the multilateral system or the international system. Country platforms with common core standards of operation bring the public, the multilateral banks, public and private sector together, led by the country, around a common set of policies which can help deliver for the country, help de-risk projects, help de-risk whole countries and programs, and then pull in the resources needed to make development happen. 
I'd like to turn now to Khalid Janahi, who is on my far left. He is a businessman, um, originally from Bahrain and now working from Switzerland. Um, he is a writer as well and a sort of disruptor of, um, <laughs> of ideas about the Middle East. And I think what I'd like to ask is just pick up on something that came up um, came up earlier, which is that the United States is stepping away from its traditional sort of strategic and uh, organizational role in the Middle East. And tell me sort of how this has changed the picture of the dynamics you've been watching. Thank you very much, Ellen. Uh, when she says I'm on far, far left, matter of fact, I'm on far right of Trump, so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not much. Um, first of all, my apologies if I'm going to sound that I'm going to be all over the place because I'm jet lag. Uh-huh. I am what, and to be fair to Mr. Trump, we call him in the Arab world Trumpo. When we spoil somebody, we add an O at the end, so he's a uh-huh. Trumpo uh-huh. in our language. Uh, I am actually traveling, uh, coming to you. I am what is termed a Middle Easterner in the migration caravan in, towards Mexico. So he is right about that. We are there. So I'm one of those. I'm coming all the way from there. So I'm jet lag. Um, I, I think. Before I go to your point, I just want to pick up on the point about where we are in terms of the financial services with what happened in 2008 and where we are today. Uh, 2008, we're talking about too big to fail. 2008, we had, in terms of the uh, sovereign debt for the emerging markets, uh, the amount of money which was in debt for those countries, today it's multiplied by four times at minimum. In real, in real terms. So the next problematic issue that we're going to face, and it's going to be a problem, is going to be actually how this debt is going to be paid and repaid with all the changes happening in terms of United States and others pulling back from what I would call the globalization and making it the, one, the, way, the way that we were looking at it for the past 20 or 30 years of a global world where everybody basically it's a seamless word that we all can do business where we want to do and it's good for everybody and we just improve the state of the world. So things will be bad and I think things will be very, very bad in terms of the overall that the one I see in the future. I don't want to be bad about it, but that's what I see. I see bad times coming ahead. Now the problem is actually when we talk about improving things in the developing countries, I come from a part of the world where we are and I think it's always good to look at the mirror and accept what you are. We are totally irrelevant today to the world. We are not, apart from that uh, arms deal between Saudi and the United States, and this is very good from an inflationary perspective. Anybody teaches inflation, it's very good. It was going to create 40,000 jobs 12 months ago. Today it's creating 1 million jobs. It's the same amount of money, but that's the so-called the presumed uh, the leader of the free world puts his numbers. Now, I actually put forward, and a lot of people do so, uh, we cannot take away what's happened in the past three weeks, the passing of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, a lot of people believe if it wasn't Mr. Trump as a president of the United States, that Jamal Khashoggi today would have been alive. That does not mean that he was behind it all, but in terms of basically this element of you do whatever you want to do in terms of sovereignty and we just stay out, I think has done a lot for what's been going on in that part of the world, whether it is Saudi, whether it is Iran, whether it is Egypt, whether it is most of those countries in that part of the world. So it is a problematic issue and 
it's going to just get worse. And I think whatever the cover-up is going to be, it looks like it's going to be a cover-up. Um, I think we will see bad times ahead, and the next two years will really be bad from that aspect. That is just my prediction from what's going on with so-called United States just pulling back from that world, part of the world. The only good thing I would see on that is actually so-called um, the deal of the century. I think the deal of the century will be delayed uh, because the people behind it, one or two of them now, there's a question mark on them, so it'll be very difficult for everybody to align on that. And if you just look at the pictures today in the conference in Saudi and Riyadh, you could see some of the faces who were there in spite of not wanting to be there. So it is very much, it's a meeting of autocrats now rather than a meeting of business community in that part of the world. And even these autocrats, some of them, matter of fact, they don't want to be there. You can just see the way they are looking at the cameras and everything else. They are very much not at ease. So it's going to be very difficult to push this deal of the century through in the next two years. That's what I see, which is one of the positives of this, because the deal of the century, which can create major problems in the foreseeable future if they go ahead with it the way it is. So pulling back uh, is creating problems for us in that part of the world. But I think there is an element of, because I don't want to take away the main issue of the two speakers, the two eminent speakers, about the development and the financing of development. Uh, we've been involved in that in, in the past. I was personally involved in where Mr. Blair invited us back in 2005, October 2005, along with Gordon Brown, in terms of really supporting the Palestinian territories in terms of investing in that part of the world. And there were a bunch of business community from the Arab world who came here, and we were invited. As a matter of fact, FT were working on that with the Downing Street and with the... Um, uh, Gordon Brown on that issue. And one thing that we had when which we all wanted to do something in terms of creating jobs was when I asked a question to Gordon Brown, I said, fine, we are interested in doing this, but we have one problem. We will take the credit risk, we will take the commercial risk, but we cannot take the uh, political risk because we can go on, say, invest in a in a factory, and that factory can be bombed off tomorrow by the Israelis. I mean, I cannot take that risk, and I cannot go and raise money and do anything with it. So, as a matter of fact, they came back, to be fair, and the G7 at the time, they were happy to cover the political risk of any investment. This was back in October 2005. We worked on this fund, put it together. January 26th, I think it was 20, January 26th, I was in Davos. I was in a session uh, about actually the Palestinian-Israeli connectivity at the time. And if everybody remembers what January 26 was, January 26 was the elections in the Palestinian territories. And I was in the session. Of course, we know what was the result. I was in a session with two, one a senator and one congressman uh, from the United States. And in that session, uh, we were told if anybody puts a single dollar in the Palestinian territories would be blacklisted. So what I'm trying to get at here is that in terms of development, uh, not just I'm using that as an example, and that the other example was actually post uh, the Arab Spring issue, but I'm using that as an example to say that politics and interests sometimes overshadow development and values. And that we see it all the time. And part of the, the world I come from, I think that is a major problem. 
Well, the problem actually, we always blame you. We blame the others. And the way you look at that part of the world, you look at us as one. And you, when you deal with that part of the world, and I think that is the, the, the disconnection between the two, that you look at us when you say the Saudis, okay, reality is, or the Arabs. The Arabs are, they are rulers and they are the people. We don't have leaders in the Arab world. We have rulers in the Arab world. And we have a long way. That's one reason why the Arab Spring did not work out or didn't go forward because lack of leaders. So we are leaderless in that part of the world. We have a long way to go to create leadership perspective, the environment, the ecosystem for leadership. But what happened, and that's part of our problem rather than yours, but you look at us as one. We look at you as one in the developed world. That's fine because you are responsible for the people who you put there, whether it is Trump or it is Clinton or it is... Blair or it is, whoever it's going to be that you put. You put them because you vote for them and you bring them. In our part of the world, we don't have that pride. And what happens is that you deal with those people. And when we say we're going to change the rules and regulations to adapt, to create all this and to see it to go forward, unfortunately, that part of the world is not going to work. Simply because there are people above the law. Simply because you are dealing with bunch of autocrats rather than dealing with the people. Now, that is your fault. Now, the fault on the other side, which is much bigger, that we will need a major, major shift in our side, in the people's side in that part of the world, that we have to change our mindset, that we have to look at the mirror. Rather than blaming you for our problems, we've got to blame ourselves for allowing these people to tell us what to do and to rule us. And that is one thing which is going to take us back a long way, and unfortunately, a lot of the other problems that comes from that part of the world, as much as it is irrelevant, is going to carry on. Before we open this up to a broader discussion, I want to introduce Andres Velasco, who is the former finance minister of Chile and now the dean of LSU School of Public Policy. I'd like to ask you a little bit about what happens the next time there is a financial crisis, because it will hit a world that is quite different from the world it hit in 2008. And in particular, I wonder how the changes in the sort of global financial safety net will change that next crisis. Financial crises are one thing that happens to us again and again and again. If you look at the last quarter century, we've had financial crises in Asia, in Latin America, in the Middle East, um, in Russia, and then, of course, a very big one that uh, began in the United States, extended to the UK, to Europe, and pretty much engulfed the rest of the world 10 years ago. So if you're a common citizen, that's a terrible thing. If you earn your living studying financial crises, which is what I do, it's not so terrible, but terrible nonetheless. Um, uh, some of these financial crises could have been avoided. Um, and uh, your question is spot on, because we know that another one will come. And the question is, have we done our homework? Have we changed the policy framework? Have we taken the right precautions so that when the next time we're hit by a financial crisis, we're not entirely unprepared. The report that uh, Ngozi, uh, Nick, and I, with uh, Eric's uh, very important input put together, along with a bunch of other colleagues, um, focuses on this question and gives it the following spin. There's a lot of capital out there. If you're a country in the Middle East or Latin America where I come from or Nigeria, you look at the world and one fact about the world is that there's a savings glut 
there's more savings than we are know what to do with, and therefore um, the appeal of getting your hands on that capital is tremendous, particularly, of course, when interest rates are very low, which they have been for the last decade and probably will remain uh, uh, low. And um, on the one hand, there's great appeal to the notion that if you're a poor country, you should borrow. Uh, for the same reason that um, when you're going to buy a house and you're a middle-class family, you, you know, the house is, you know, we're in London, so I'll say a big figure, worth a million pounds. You don't wait until you have a million pounds in your pocket and then buy a house. You wait until you have 10% of the value and you borrow the rest. Well, economic theory suggests that if you're a poor country, you should do exactly the same thing as a family is doing. Um, the problem is, of course, that once you begin to borrow, you lose control of your affairs because the next time the lenders panic, you may be the victim. And, of course, the last quarter century can be told as the history of a succession of panics. Uh, and when lenders panic... Not only do they stop lending new money, meaning that whatever trade deficit or current account deficit you had has to be closed, and you have to slash imports and do all sorts of nasty things, but they may also require the repayment of the old loans, one in you know, a morning or a week or a month. And when everybody's trying to repay, everybody's selling, nobody's buying, asset prices collapse, the stock market collapses, firms collapse, balance sheets of banks and companies go out the window, and we've got a full-fledged financial crisis, which is, of course, very painful for everybody. So foreign capital is very appealing, very attractive, and nowadays very cheap. On the other hand, it is very risky and very volatile and very unpredictable. What should we do? One answer is to say we will do without um, capital. So you closed off your economy. And some closing off is not entirely bad. Uh, you know, China has developed while being somewhat close to international capital markets. But of course, China is big. What China can do is not exactly what Panama can do, right? Uh, very different circumstances. Another thing that a number of Asian countries do is simply they sit on a pile of reserves. So this is akin to saying, I'm a middle-class family, I'm going to buy a house, but I'm going to keep in cash under my mattress the value of the house. That's crazy. It's expensive. It's unappealing. So what I'm trying to get at is that one of the aims of the report is to come up with a set of policies that will make it possible for countries to borrow and invest and build schools and hospitals and factories and prosper while at the same time not being entirely at the mercy of international capital markets and while not being you know, at the mercy of that 22-year-old on Wall Street who's going to pull his money out or somebody else's money. And we propose three things. Um, we actually propose more than three, but let me say three. First one is you begin by developing your local capital market because along with the foreign capital, you must draw on domestic savings. Again, the analogy of the home, you, know, you put up a, a, a down payment. That's your own money. Second thing we do is we've got to have much better surveillance because some of these crises are long in the making and you want to sort of nip them in the bud. Last but not least, let me give one more minute, and this is the big one, um, so I don't want to uh, leave it under the table, is we need 
a big, what we economists would call a big liquidity facility to come to the aid of a country that was going along merrily developing and suddenly is the victim of one of these self-fulfilling panics. And that liquidity facility has to be at the IMF. I know the IMF is not the best loved institution in the world. Let's make it more lovable. And to make it more lovable, we've got to give it a great deal more money and make that money more accessible in a pinch. So I'm afraid Ngozi will have to leave shortly. So... Shall we? I, I think we, we should really open it up now, mm-hmm. particularly for questions for for Dr. Ngozi. Anyone has a pressing question for? Uh, yes, uh, over there. I thought we had been so stunning that we yeah. <laughs> pressing questions. Okay. Good evening, everyone. My name is Amako Chibe. Um, I have a question for Ngozi, obviously. Um, you spoke about um, concrete platforms and um, also friendly policies that can help the African continent. My question is, this is still entirely relying on you know, these um, friendly countries to actually help us in terms of our policies and investments. What can the African leaders do specifically to harness the resources we have in abundance, which is basically population? What can they do to actually help themselves? We had one more question there. And then... Good evening, Ma. Um, mm-hmm. My question is to... Um, Can you introduce yourself, too? Uh, my name is Koforala Ike. I'm mm-hmm. from Nigeria as well. And my question is twofold. First, uh, you talked about country platforms, and I'm wondering what are the points of entry for young people willing to invest their time and resources in developing Nigeria? Um, that's in terms of the opportunities. And then in terms of what advice would you give us to how do we best prepare to face the challenges, right? Because it's not just infrastructure. It's not just going there and investing our resources. But it's also the challenges of, of having um, a common understanding, a common sense of values. And also there's no maintenance, con- uh, maintenance culture on the continent. Like you said, you can build something. But if, you, um, if the, the environment is so fragile, how do you now maintain it over time? Right, so like, how do you create um, infrastructures that are anti-fragile, that 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 strengthen themselves within um, difficult environments? And then, sorry, the last question is. <laughs> Seven <laughs> for the one. Okay, the last question is: If we know that power passes through the bloodline, right? A lot of our focus um, are on the ministers. Um, who are currently in power, but not enough on their children. So how do we um, bring together the other forces, um, such as religion and um, the family structure, in order to empower the children so that whoever, however they come into power, once they're there, they're able to take responsibility for that seat. Thank you. One last question here. Hi, Connie Jackson, I'm an alum of LSE. For all these opportunities, I wonder if you could talk about the role of women and their exclusion from the society and being able to take advantage of these opportunities. Sorry, the role of women mm-hmm. have you know if, if you have women who are uh, not able to fill their full potential, then you know then it feels as if that's another way where you're not taking advantage of the full opportunity of the emerging markets. You have to sing for your supper now. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are all uh, very good questions. Uh, Thank you. Um, you, Let me, the the question on country platforms and what can African countries do for themselves. It's a very 
pertinent or good question. I actually started out with that by saying that the way we see this report, we believe that the primary responsibility for a country's development lies on the country. I always say that no one can develop you. You have to develop yourself. So it starts with this, the idea of nations crafting the good policies, uh, presenting the environments that will ne then make it possible for others to come and support. So the intervention of the others is in a support mode. The primary responsibility is incumbent on the countries to help themselves. And when I say the countries, I, I mean also the people. Because you made a comment, we tend to look to leaders and to government constantly. And I always encourage young people, development starts with you. Fighting corruption starts with you. Dealing with issues, you have to ask yourself, what can I do? So um, I, I think that African countries can do a lot. It could take us the whole day to try to, to get through that. But I believe that there are certain things we got right and some things we've got wrong. And some of the things we've got wrong have to do with our education system. I think many countries are dissatisfied with the education system, but in many of our countries, the education system is really falling apart and not delivering. We have uh, you know, large numbers of out-of-school children. Um, in, in fact, in Nigeria, we have the largest number of out-of-school children in, in, in the world. Um, a lot of them are based in the north of the country. So how do we get an education system that brings our children into school? How do we get an education system that really educates and builds on the technology we have? Health systems, governance, providing basic infrastructure. I know it's not the only thing, but if you really want some of these other areas to move, you've got to provide light. The president of the African Development Bank said that you know, Africa cannot develop in the dark. So we have to address certain basic infrastructural issues. What do we have for counting for us? We have a very entrepreneurial population. We have people who are succeeding against all odds and in spite of their governments. And we need to figure out how to harness that better. And that's what's exciting to me, that when you go into many of these countries, there's an energy, an entrepreneurship, and by the way, women are a serious part of this. So women may not be in government, they may not be in parliaments, except in two or three countries on the continent, but they are in the marketplace. They are part of the economy. And we need to find ways to harness that even more because you can't leave out their contribution. So in short, I believe we really have to take the gauntlet and I said we are already financing more than 60% of our own development in those countries that are said to be aid-dependent. So we just have to look on ourselves to put the right policies in place. So that's one. Um, young people have a role to play. I think young people, all this is for you. There's a tendency for young people to hang back and feel that the older people are blocking their way on the continent. And the answer to that is the older people will never hand over power to you. You have to take it. And you, you have to. Mm -hmm. Similar to the women. Nobody's going to invite you and hand over power. <laughs> you have to organize yourselves to take it individually and collectively. 
And for young people, you have the vote. Many young people don't even vote where you can vote. You have the power in the marketplace to organize. If you, you don't have to join government. You, have, you can form civil society organizations. You can be active in school, in, 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 in church, and so on. You talked about the power of other values other than ministers being in power. How do you empower children? It starts from the home. It starts with your values. It starts with your looking at the education that your children or child is getting and finding ways and means to make your voice heard. So I, I urge young people, they have far more power. If 60% or more of the population in almost all the African countries are 25 years and younger, what does that say? Just think about that demographic. Some countries is 50%, others is as much as 60. It means that the power to change the way you're governed lies in your hands in the future, and you need to seize it. Um, now, how, how I, I think I've touched on the role of the family. The maintenance culture you talked about is a huge lack in our countries. Actually, one of the things that we have to fix that the government needs to think about and in the international community is the weakness of institutions in our countries. We have weak institutions and absence of institutions, systems, and processes. I always tell audiences, when I became finance minister of Nigeria the first time in 2003 to 6, I found we didn't have the electronic and, in, and, and technology platforms for payment systems. How can you, as a finance minister, be transferring money to ministries to pay their staff? What does it engender? It leaves loopholes for people to hijack some of those resources and be corrupt. So we had to build electronic platforms. We had to build treasury systems, put them in place. These are all missing. So weak institutions, including, lead to a weak maintenance culture. But institutions are not sexy. They take time to build, right? So people focus on the more immediate things, be they politicians or international community. If you want to build institutions, you have to stay with it for the long term, five, six, seven years, in order to have the underpinning of development in, in any uh, country or society. So let me leave it there with the thought of institutions. And uh, you know, I, I'll leave with my famous quiz, which is, I have one minute, that I want to ask how many people know who the leader of Switzerland is. <laughs> who is the president? <laughs> huh? They change, but <laughs> do any of us know? It used to be Doris Lettard. Who is it now? Any Swiss people here, do they even know? Sometimes it's Swiss themselves, don't they? <laughs> However, people are prepared to put their money in Switzerland, send their children to Swiss finishing schools, go on vacation in Switzerland because they believe in the strong institutions of that country. They don't need to know who the minister or president is. That's the direction we need to be heading. Not about who is finance minister or foreign minister. It's about whether the countries have strong institutions. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Ngozi. And, and safe travel. We need you. Uh, more questions for the panel?
back there. Hi, uh, my name is Alexandra. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, my question is primarily actually for uh, Mr. Abdullah Janahi. Uh, you mentioned when you were speaking about the sort of need for leaders in the Middle East. Um, and I, I think that a lot of us, when we think of that sort of absence of leadership, we sort of assume that the replacement should be a democratic form of leadership. Um, but it's a fairly popular opinion these days that democracy itself is sort of in a state of crisis when you have leaders like Donald Trump, who at the very least is a very divisive figure, um, even Theresa May, who seems to be uh, fairly universally disliked um, at present. And so I'm wondering if you have any insight into what form those those leaders that the Middle East needs, uh, what form they should take and, and perhaps into what political system uh, they should enter if perhaps what is needed even more than the individuals is perhaps those institutions that Dr. Ngozi was just, just mentioning. If you might have any insight you could share. I'll collect a few questions and, and then... And so please, there's one right next to... Hello, my name is Maria. I'm also doing Masters at LSE right now. And I've got a few points. Uh, from, like more political, theoretical perspective, I think, I feel like all of you quite firmly stand on the ground of realism uh, in the sense that you mentioned that nation states should be um, should be leaders, like global leaders, but I guess my hard truth is that nation states are not very good at global leadership and maybe it's half of my, like I don't know, teenage rebellion against the system, but uh, then where does it leave the bodies like UN or EU that are kind of also um, facing the crisis in, in the sense that they are not the leaders that they were meant to be. And um, my other point is to the Professor Velasco mm -hmm. uh, about how to counter this um, financial crisis. crisis. I'm sorry. Uh, what I learned that um, the power, for example, in World Bank or IMF can be quite easily hijacked in the um, interest of the nation states again. And how, yeah, how does it align with the notion of the global leadership to help states uh, in the world um, withstand those crises? Yeah, thank you. Okay, and, and then. Thank you. Um, since we had just like this beautiful speech from Madame Ngozi. Just a short question, maybe. Where, how can we shift from, from leaders to strong institutions in the Middle East? To you. Okay. We have a, a number of questions focusing on the Middle East. I'm also conscious that we have not really uh, discussed much detail about this report that's focused on the panel, but let's, let's see what we can do and, and try to think about that in, in your answers. But uh, Khalid, are you first? Andres, okay. I go first. Well, you talked about the IMF and the World Bank being hijacked. Um, I wonder by whom. One interpretation, of course, um, when I was a student many years ago, a famous German economist called Rudi Dornbusch used to say that the IMF was nothing but a wholly owned subsidiary of the U.S. Treasury. And there's a little bit of truth to that view. But... Um, but, you know, it is very easy to dislike the multilaterals. Um, 
Of course, if you come from Latin America, which I do, every time there's been a crisis, you, you, you blame the IMF, and then when the IMF um, comes in and tells you what you have to do to get out of the crisis, you blame the IMF as well. Um, and believe me, as a political exercise, it is a fun game. But it is ultimately a very unhealthy game because uh, however much they can be easy to dislike, I believe, and I think a lot of sensible people believe, there is an important and probably, uh, not only is an important role, but it's a role that nobody really can do except for these institutions. Um, in, um, first of all, mobilizing capital, precisely help deal with these failures of private capital that I described earlier. Uh, secondly, helping build those institutions. Of course, the countries have a role to play, but uh, the world has a role to play. And thirdly, and I think this is increasingly recognized, being purveyors of wisdom. Of If something works in one country, well, it may be applicable someplace else. So these are banks of in finance, but they're also sources of um, best practice, knowledge, learning, etc., etc. So I believe that the World Bank and the IMF can play a role. Uh, there are, of course, many things that they have to do differently. And precisely what we tried to do in this report was to argue that, uh, yes, here's a list of things that need to be amended. And if we amend them, that role uh, can be played even better. Khalid, you... Yes, I'd like to pick up from where Anders finished, actually, with the IMF and the World Bank. I think the IMF and the World Bank will be really well-trusted if the next leaders of both are not American and European. Because by virtue of what's been going on for so many years, since 1940s, this is basically saying, although we say there is no involvement, but in reality is one is American, one is European. And the world has changed so much since 1940s. We have so many good bankers, central bankers, in Latin America, in Africa, and elsewhere, who deserve the job much better than the ones who are there. I'm not saying these are bad, but they are much better. So I think rather than just talking the, the talk, let's really walk the talk and do something about it. And that's going to be the first change if we're going to do things right. But America has a big say, and that's why Turkey was not interested in the IMF issue, because they know that they're going to get, they're going to get something big head in their, in their head. But things have changed in the past 18 days. Turkey is enjoying it now. It's going to make lots of money. Coming back to your point, the Arab world today does not have leaders. That's what I say. The Arab world is a bunch of rulers. So, and when I say rulers, I don't mean people sitting at the top. I'm saying throughout the system, we have rulers. Whether it is at the bank, whether it is at home, whether it is in the school, everywhere we have rulers. So we got to move from the rulership to the leadership. And you cannot have a system without changing your mindset. So it is within us. We can do whatever. We can create the best things. We have the best laws in certain countries in the Arab world. When it comes to the actions that we take, it's really ludicrous. And actually, it's very, very shameful the way we do things. So it is the change has to come from within. People say it's education. Education doesn't come just for free. We have the, some of the best education systems. I mean, Saudi Arabia spent it since... 2001 spend hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of improving, improving their education. But that does not change the mindset and the mindset shift of the people. So it is within us, we have to make the change. Now, how, that, how we go about that, actually, is the young people who are going to start pushing. I mean, she's left here, but what she said about the young, the young have to take charge. And the young in the Arab world, like Africa, they represent over 70% of the population. It's in their hand. I see bad times in my lifetime and for my 
sons. But I'm hoping for my grandchildren, there'll be something coming up, because there must be something coming up later on. Something has to give eventually. The way we've been living, the way the world, who's been taking advantage of us, too, okay, who's been basically keeping quiet, I like Trump, because Trump is open. He says it. He says very, very clear. Go and do whatever you want to do there. We are not interested. We just give us the money. I like that. That's pretty clear and direct. There is no playing games there because he knows there are no values in that part of the world. And his value is transactional, is business. So give me the money. And it reminds me of the, the, the movie uh, Jerry Maguire. Just show me the money. So the guy is basically show him the money. In our part of the world, we got to change and we got to change basically from within before we ask others to help us. We can ask the others to help us in terms of building institutions. But if we don't change, there's no point to have the best institutions once we are what we are ourselves. So it is within us that we have to make the mindset shift to go to the right direction and to start creating leaders out of rulers that we have. It's very bad at home. Parents are rulers, the way they treat their children, because they, everybody walks in that part of the world. Majority of us, maybe a few of us don't, but majority of us walk with our back against the wall. We are scared of saying anything because it's going to go against us. That does not create entrepreneurs. I'm sorry to say, entrepreneurs that we have in the Arab world are by luck, or they've gone to Silicon Valley, or they've gone elsewhere. So we need to basically get our mindset and we have this critical thinking to come out. If it doesn't, we will carry on being where we are. But the only good thing is it can only get better because we are really bad where we are today. Nick, did you want to say something? Or? Um, it depends if you want to hear about the report of the eminent persons group, which I thought <laughs> we were here for. Yeah. Um, let me talk a little bit about the building of institutions and the building of infrastructure, which are the key stories in the process of development. Um, the world infrastructure will double in about 15 years and the world economy will double growth rate of 3.1, 3.2 in about 20 years. The area of our cities will double in 20 years and the population will double in 30 or 40 years. Next 20 years we have to cut greenhouse gas emissions by something like 25% if we are to have a reasonable chance or remotely reasonable chance of holding temperature increases to uh, well below 2 degrees centigrade, the Paris target. We've seen very clearly with the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees that the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is very dangerous and it wasn't for nothing that the scientists said long ago that two degrees was a threshold of the dangerous uh, climate change. We haven't been at three degrees for three million years. Homo sapiens, generous notion of sapiens, 250,000 mm -hmm. years, a quarter of a million years. Now, our societies really have, from the last ice age, nine or 10,000 years ago, when we um, changed grasses into grains and became sedentary and, and so on. So we just have to think very clearly about the urgency that those numbers just show you. The world economy doubles in 20. If the world economy that we build in two decades looks anything like the one we have, there's no way that we cut emissions by 25%. So what's the answer to that? How do we generate the sustainable development goals which the world agreed in September 2014? Very sensible dimensions. You can argue about the targets on each of the dimensions, but very sensible dimensions. 
around hunger, income and poverty, income distribution, education, health, gender issues, inequality, oceans, forests and so on. It's the same answer. It's how we build sustainable infrastructure. Good, clean water supply um, is very good for health. It's very good for education because bad health is very damaging for education. It helps with the gender problems because it's usually the girls and women that have to travel to find the water. And as they do that, they are very vulnerable and also they're losing time that they could be spending on education and so on. Similarly with public transport. Public transport... It's poor people on the whole who benefit from that. It reduces emissions. It makes you more robust to the uh, extreme weather events that uh, occur. It uh, reduces pollution. It's the poor people who suffer from that. Everywhere you look, you find sustainable infrastructure at the core. 70% of that will be in the emerging market economies. So you very quickly, from that very simple but crucial way of looking at the way the global commons have come under pressure, what drives development, um, particularly around sustainable development goals, you come back to sustainable infrastructure. This report is in large measure how the projects that are conceivable translate into real projects, how uh, they are finance, getting the right kind of finance in the right place at the right time. The investment climate which we discussed, the way government behaves, the kind of um, tax system you have in place, the way the infrastructure works. The investment climate is key to drawing projects through. The country platform which Ngozi described is key to Mm. private sector and development banks and the country's own public finance being well spent. And managing the risk, because finance is basically in large measure about managing risk, you need equity and political risk guarantees to get these infrastructure projects through the difficult early stages. Once you've done that, the whole wall of money that's in private sector institutions can come in because they've got a project with a cash flow to it. So you can see I've started with the very big problems you know, the, the doubling of the infrastructure, the doubling of the economy at the same time we have to reduce emissions. I've started with very big problems, which are the sustainable development goals and the uh, key dimensions and targets therein, which the world has agreed. 190-some countries signed up to the SDGs in September 2015 and over 190 countries to the Paris Agreement in December <coughs> 2015. You start with the very big problems and you very quickly get to the specifics of public policy and the investment climate. You get to the specifics of project preparation, the specifics of country platform, the specifics of how these finance mechanisms work. And that's exactly what we've done in the report. The investment climate, proposal one. Country platforms, proposal two. Private sector multipliers through the management of risk, essentially proposals three, four, and five. It's very specific as to how you tackle these very big problems. But it starts with the big problems. I'm curious if, if it's necessary or possible to go forward on these goals without the U.S., with the assumption that the U.S. will not be a full-throated participant. Um, we now have a multipolar world in which, a university, in which the United States, and that's a good one, the United States is very large but not dominant, and it used to be very large and dominant. So on the whole, the countries of the world, I mean, let me stick with the climate change example, the countries of the world have passed the Trump test. Mm-hmm. They have said, we get on with it. 
I was in, uh, you know, COP21 was the big Paris Agreement in 2015. Uh, for my sins, I've been at all the COPs for the last dozen years. But the, in COP22, the year after Paris, 2016, um, the, right after the Trump election, uh, country after country stood up and said, we get on with it. And country after country has got on with it, whether it's China or India or Indonesia, um, different ways, different <coughs> places. But uh, they've got on with it. And, you know, you've got states, firms, cities within the United States that have gone on with it. Now, one of the great things about the United States is it's not dominated just by uh, one person in the White House. Okay, I think we want to get some more questions from the audience here. So, please, in the... Hello, my question is for Andres Velasco. Uh, my name is Montserrat and I am from UCL. And I was wondering in that uh, liquidity facility that you mentioned, if uh, on the report you, you kind of like um, make the connection with the new sustainable development mechanism that is going to be implemented after Paris? Is there like a way that This, because we know how this sustainable mechanism is going to look like. So is there like a way that you're thinking about integrating that uh, sort of project into this capital provider? Okay, more questions? Uh, the question is, is, I suppose, primarily addressed to Professor Velasco. Um, when we look at China, and it's, it's uh, in light of the abdication of the U.S. from uh, TPP and TIP and uh, UN committees, can anyone argue that um, against the road and belt policies, which involve China uh, getting onto uh, uh, Lord Stern's point, providing the infrastructure to emerging economies. Now, just, th just keep uh, looking at South America, what they're doing in Peru, building the world's biggest iron ore plant in, in, involving uh, railways being built and ports. The Americans never did that. Buying soybeans from Brazil and with the prosperity that that, that creates for the Brazilian um, economy perhaps with an environmental uh, negative repercussion. What I'm saying is, uh, when you, if you compare Chinese policies towards the traditional Western foreign aid brackets, is, this, is, is it not a benefit to, the world, to these countries? Okay. One more question. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sanjan. I work for the civil service. Um, the fundamental challenge that we have in the UK or across the world is issues of inequality. One of the fundamental issues that we're facing now in the UK with Brexit quite imminent is maybe as a result of the global financial crisis which happened 10 years ago manifesting itself in the protest vote of Brexit or maybe Trump and the rise of populism on the other side of the Atlantic as well as on this side of the Atlantic. How can you hope to uh, find good leaderships or even uh, bring forward what the eminent persons 
report has put forward in terms of looking at the environmental lens of our economic growth, how can you find leadership in the age of populism where inequality isn't really being addressed by any of our political systems and anywhere in the world and if we can't address inequality now, how are we going to address something as big as the uh, climate change issue? It's sad that the IPCC report that came out last week got so little coverage in the UK and across the world and it's kind of been brushed on the carpet to a great extent when it's a very important issue for all of us. So how in the age of Trump can we even contemplate a report like this? Am I supposed to answer that? Yes. My God. Well, lots of questions, big questions. Can't sure I can do justice to all of them, but maybe let me try. I want to begin with Ellen's point. Um, uh, Can we do these things in the United States? My answer is going to be a resounding yes. I know that Americans find this hard to countenance, but better get used to it, guys. Um, uh, I think it is quite remarkable what happened with the famous TPP. You know, the U.S. stepped out. Uh, the assumption was the pact is dead, and uh, the Australians, the Japanese, the New Zealanders, the Peruvians, the Chileans said, why? Um, no need. And in fact, the TPP went ahead, and the TPP is a better pact from a technical point of view without the U.S. than it would have been with the U.S., because the U.S. would have put in a lot of things that were not exactly free trade. Um, I think there's a much better chance for a free trade of the Americas uh, um, agreement uh, if it begins, um, I don't know, south of Texas. Um, uh, and I think that will happen uh, sooner rather than later. I am not celebrating the U.S. withdrawal. I'm simply saying that the world does not end without the United States. Um, liquidity versus sustainability versus long-term finance. That was a question back there. These are two separate issues. Of course, they're close cousins, but in my mind, I think, in our minds, we should keep them separate. One issue is how do we provide long-term capital for the kinds of green infrastructure projects that Nick was talking about? And I think the report has some answers. Nick and Ngozi have talked about them. Um, you know, I'm the boring macroeconomist, uh, so I have to worry about not about the big issue of long-term investment, but the short-term issue of how do we provide money for the country whose currency is being attacked and is being pummeled by speculators. Um, and of course, if you don't get this part right, all the long-term stuff may simply fade away. Um, and that's why I think, as a macroeconomist, that we need these liquidity facilities. Because, yes, some countries follow bad policies and get into trouble, but they're perfectly nice countries that don't follow bad policies, and they also get into trouble because of the fickle nature of capital movements. And that's where the big liquidity facility comes in. And I should say, parenthetically, that we need this not only for economic reasons, not only because financial crises are costly in terms of employment and output, which they are, Uh, but also for political reasons, because I think it's pretty evident that um, the current wave of populism we're seeing today has something to do, I'm going to be very vague about it, something to do with the big financial crisis the world experienced 10 years ago. It's not so much inequality, parenthetically. Inequality is a very bad thing, but uh, we're getting populism in places where inequality has been going up, but we're also getting populism in places where inequality has been going down, like Latin America. So inequality cannot be the variable that explains everything. But clearly, the perception on the part of many people 
and that the financial sector did many stupid things. They triggered a crisis, and on top of it, they didn't pay for it because they got bailed out. That perception, right or wrong, is politically very harmful. And therefore, I mean, in my mind at least, clearly it has a link with populism. So if we're worried about populism, that's another argument for getting the economics right and the facility lending right to help prevent financial crises. Nick, you wanted yeah, to comment I, on that. I say something very quickly about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I've been working in India for more than 45 years, which is one of the Belt and Road countries, according to China anyway, and the, um, in China for more than 30, 30 years. I've been quite involved with Chinese planning over the last um, decade. The, um, the Belt and Road Initiative covers 65, 70 countries and about half the global population, up to 4 billion people, depending on how you do the counting. They currently have income per capita in those Belt and Road countries, about half that of uh, China. So you immediately see the crucial importance of this. If those countries double in 20 years or so, which would be re- relatively modest 3% growth rates by you know, low-middle-income country standards, poor country standards, um, you'd have um, around three times, you'd have three new Chinas today in 20 years' time, Chinas which look like China now. Now, could the world support that? The answer is that it certainly could, only if the uh, change in the pattern of growth of those countries in these next 20 years was very different. And China is actually saying very clearly now, but quietly and a bit uh, inward-looking, that if we had, in 1995, the technologies that we now do have, if we'd had in 1995 the understanding of how the cities would clog up and get polluted, if we had that in 1995, we'd have followed a different route. So you can see there's an absolutely crucial argument here and role for China. If China engages in the Belt and Road Initiative with that insight at its core, then it'll be a very powerful force for good. And, of course, you'll be linking up markets, which now are markets which link up with the world's biggest economy, at least in purchasing power parity terms. So it could be a very powerful force for good. If, on the other hand, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and the projects which China finances are of the old style, Um, You know, it's building coal-fired power stations in Pakistan. It makes no sense. India is moving out of the coal-fired power stations. So it's a very... There's nothing more important than China's 14th five-year plan, 2021-25, the largest economy in the world. There's nothing more important than the Belt and Road Initiative. And they could go in very good directions or they might not. And that's why it's so important to engage. I I wanted to interject. I... um it was really very striking how in Sri Lanka the electorate actually turned against Chinese investment. The Chinese were shoveling investment into Sri Lanka, building airfields and ports and so forth, huge amounts of money. And very quickly the political worm turned and people regarded these as loans that would come due on their children. So that was a really sort of striking political moment there and you can't exclude that that's going to happen other places. No, you can't. That's why a bit of competition is a good idea. And if there are alternative places they can go for the project that I am in finance, that's excellent. And that's one of the purposes 
with the reforms here. So we mustn't be naive and say the Chinese are necessarily shoving it down their throat. Countries are, you know, I've just come back from Indonesia where they're putting together their own low carbon development plan. That's a Belt and Road country, but those decisions will be shaped by Indonesia. And the more support they have, the more alternative sources of finance they have, the better. I, th- I think Pakistan actually is, an imp- I think it's the most interesting one of all, because that's the one which is staying between the Chinese and the Americans. So I think the future, well, few months that we will see how Imran Khan will go with whatever. But I would like to come back to your point about that what we are in today is a lot of it to do with the financial crisis of 2008. A lot of the problems. Never so few damaged so many when we look at it. I mean, all these, the ones who basically, the few, they are still there. They are the big ones, the big players who were basically, the tax man's money was paid to them and they kept it and without doing anything. But let's not forget, actually, in the United States, over 250 banks, medium and small size banks, who had no issue, no problems whatsoever, they had to close down. Because what you said happened. These big banks said, okay, give me the money back that I've lent you, back, and nothing in the future. So it created a problem. But the issue of populism, I think it's an important thing. I mean, we talk about populists coming up in the United States and elsewhere. I think from a U.S. perspective, at least you do see, and I take Nick's point, that in the United States it's a totally different thing than the others. I see it to be temporary rather than being permanent. The problem is in other parts of the world, Europe and elsewhere, it does become more of a problematic issue. It will go away, but it will take much longer time to go away. In the United States, it is because of the way things are there, the infrastructure itself, it's going to change, change quickly. And then the selfish gene in me brings me back. I would like actually the United States to be the leader of the free world, whilst we in that part, that part of the world, we are picking up and coming up because the alternatives are really misery for us. Whether it is India, China, whoever it's going to be, it's a miserable thing for that part of the world where the autocrats can play much worse game than they are doing today, where the autocrats at the top, autocrats at home, autocrats everywhere will create more of a problem. So for me, United States being the leader of the free world for the foreseeable future, 50, 60, 70 years, is the right thing for us. But that is the selfish gene in me. I think on that note, uh, we have reached our final moment, I think, and, and I want to thank you very much. I think, you know, the, this report is really about how can you get capital to flow from rich countries, from these, you talked about the, the savings glut, all this capital um, going around the liquid financial markets and get them to flow into emerging and, and developing economies that requires things to happen in the, in the countries. We talked about improving the investment climate, improving how uh, the local financial system works and so on. It also requires measures on the global level to secure and make sure that these flows happen on a regular basis and, and that they are not so volatile uh, as, as they've been in the past. And, and also when there are financial crises that they don't, uh, are, are not disrupted because countries become dependent on, on these flows and, 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 and um, that they are, this money also go into productive investments. So I think it, you know, we have discussed a lot about the context of this around Trump and, and the emergence of populism and how this is threatening uh, the whole system. And, and Khalid has just uh, declared that he wants to the U.S. to to continue its leadership. We'll see what not, not, not Trump. Yes. Not Trump. But, but uh, no. So I, I think we. This is 
I think the reality we have to face. We, it is a multipolar world. There are, as I think we say somewhere in the report, uh, several orchestras already playing. We cannot expect to have one conductor, and and that is the, the world that we will be we facing. We don't want one conductor. No, we don't want one conductor. I think that is uh, also uh, in, in what uh, new multilateralism is about. So, with that, thank you very much to the panel, and thank you to you for. Uh,